Second uh, Samuel chapter 24, and uh, we'll begin reading in verse 18 and read down to verse 25, which is the end of the book. <clears throat> it says this, And Gad, which was a prophet, came that day to David and said unto him, Go up, rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. And David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. And Arana looked and saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and bowed himself before the king on his face upon the ground. And Arana said, Wherefore, why is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Arana said unto David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seemeth good unto him. Behold, here be oxen for burnt sacrifice, and threshing instruments, and other instruments of the oxen for wood. All these things did Arana as a king give unto the king. And Arana said unto the king, The Lord thy God accept thee. And the king said unto him, Excuse me, said unto Arana, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David brought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was stayed from Israel. That'll conclude our reading this morning. That's reading 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 18 through 25. The title of our message this morning is A Costly Sacrifice. A Costly Sacrifice. There is a putrid... I don't know what word to use here, as strong of a word as I can find, uh, trend in American Christianity today. And as so many things happen, it begins often in our culture. And then as um, Christians become more worldly, it bleeds into Christian culture, whatever that is, And then if we're not careful, it can bleed into our church or the Lord's churches. And that is a trend, which is become a Christian, become part of our church. Here's what God can give you. I've even noticed in preaching, I had been pastoring a church, uh, the only church I've ever pastored than here, for about two or three years, and I began to notice a disturbing trend a lot of times when I'd come to the conclusion of a message. And that was, I would try to entice people to obedience. Or in other words, I would say, if you'll do this, God will bless you. If you do this, you'll feel this way. If you do this, here are the benefits. 
And I'll tell you today that there are many benefits to serving the Lord. So this is not an either-or proposition. And I don't want to make it out as such. If you get saved, there are a lot of wonderful benefits that are so great they're inexpressible. And I don't want to diminish that whatsoever. Because we could spend a great deal of time focusing on those things, noting those things, and at times of discouragement, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to be motivated by some of those things. The fact that I know in the midst of hardship I'm going to heaven free of hardship is a wonderful motivation to keep living the way that God wants me to. However, that can also be a very pernicious thing that can infect a mindset or a church that leaves the truth incomplete. And if I was to say that this morning, what I would say is that this distortion is not an error. It makes the gospel message incomplete. There are many benefits to serving the Lord. But there's a flip side to that coin. There is a cost to serving the Lord. And in a culture which is obsessed with what have you done for me lately? What can you give me? Or what I would say is the natural byproduct of a free market, which I support, but the natural byproduct of a free market is that it changes the psyche of people that live within it. And it becomes a, what is the advantage, what is the benefit of what you can give me versus what somebody else can give me? And yet what we find is that some things in life are not meant to be a, what is the best you can give me? There are higher ideals, values, that are worth accepting less of a benefit for, for the value of that principle or ideal. And I think it's something as a public school teacher for the last almost 10 years, I see lacking in a deeper, a deeper substance of that is that so often what you're the carrot you're putting in front of people are, if you do this, if you, if you do what I tell you, you'll get good grades. If you get good grades, you'll go to a good college. If you go to a good college, you'll get a good job. Then you'll make a lot of money. Then you'll be happy. And there's always this carrot that we're putting out in front of people. And yet what I would say this morning is that the highest things in life are not ought not to be done because of the benefit you gain, but because of the cost you pay. That's antithetical to the way we think. We don't think that way as human beings. It's part of our fallen nature. And yet the reality is, the more that is worth sacrificing for something, the more valued that thing is. I want to read you a quote this morning. It says this. When you plumb to the depth of genuine love, you realize that it is not built upon reciprocity. 
reciprocity, and I, it explains it here. In other words, it isn't about what you get from loving someone. Rather, godly love rests upon the notion that loving someone with no regard for self is the highest state of being and can only be achieved by sacrifice. When I willingly lose for God's gain with no regard for myself, I have just learned why I am here and just lived for a moment how Christ lived for a lifetime. It's not about, I could this morning say, if you're saved, this is the benefit. If you join the church, here are the benefits. If you devote yourself to the church, here are the benefits. I don't want to do that this morning. I want to tell you what it costs. I want to be transparent today. Because I think there's also a notion that has grown, again, a putrid one, that we need more people. No, we don't. We don't need more people. We need the right kind of people. Jesus put it to his disciples and say, unless you leave everything and follow me, you cannot, it's impossible to be my disciple. Think of the motivation in that. It wasn't a very rousing speech, was it? He didn't say, listen, if you come with me, he could have just told them the truth. He could have said, if you follow me, what you're going to do is there's going to come a point here in about five or six years where a Roman is going to remark, these men turned the world upside down. And he could have told them, come and follow me because after I leave, I'm going to pass the baton of my ministry unto you. You're going to be the leaders, the foundation, as the Bible tells us later on through the Apostle Paul of this organization called the church. You're going to spread out through the Roman Empire. It's going to go everywhere and it's going to be here for ages and ages, for, for, for millennia after that I leave and you're going to be credited with it. And if you'll come and follow me, that's what's going to happen to you. That's the benefit of following me. And there would have been many, men and women had God enticed them that way that probably would have said, man, that sounds great. I'll give up my fisherman's gig. I'll give up my tax collector's gig because that is a true revolution that I want to be part of. I want to be remembered. But Jesus did not tell them that, did he? No, what he said was this, come and follow me and here's the cost, but this is the right thing to do. This is what God is calling you. This is why you were created, and this is what you need to do. And so he told them right up front the cost. You know what the cost did for many people? Well, we find, I believe it's the sixth chapter of the book of John. Many went away when they heard the hardness of his saying. What was he talking about in John chapter 6? Well, he said to them that I must be your food. I must be your drink. You must partake of my flesh and drink of my blood. Now, a lot of people have distorted what exactly that means, but it was said of one of our former presidents, Lyndon Johnson, that he ate and drank politics. You know what that means. That means the only thing that he thought about all the time was politics. Jesus is saying that exact same thing there. He's saying, unless I am your all, 
you cannot be my disciple. And the Bible says those disciples, former followers, or at that time, current followers of his, they heard it and it was hard and they went away. And Jesus didn't say, well, hold on, come back. Let me tell you the benefits now. No, he wanted to bestow the benefits on people who loved him unconditionally at a cost. That's who God reserves the greatest benefits of the gospel for. People who say, I'm following him even unto death. There I'm going. I don't care the cost. See, here we have in this particular scripture text in 2 Samuel chapter 24 that background I'm not going to spend a lot of time on. There's a lot that we could talk about in regards to this background that David had pridefully. We read the same account in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. David had proudly numbered the people, taken a census. He had done it, presumably, this is me stepping in here, what it seems like from 1 Chronicles chapter 21, so that he could see how many people were under his reign. How great of a king am I? And so he sends Joab out. Before Joab out goes to count the people, Joab even warns him and says, King David, is this really what God wants? Should we really do this? Warns him not to do it because he knew it would be displeasing to God, but David commands him anyway. Joab goes out, I believe, for approximately two years to number the people. He comes back with an incomplete census. He tells him what the number is, and God begins to uh, show his displeasure by Gad coming to him, the prophet, and saying, you've displeased God, and God's going to punish you for this. He comes to him, and he gives him three options for what he could experience as a punishment. David says, you know what? Whatever God gives me is what I'll accept. I want God to choose that. God chooses to send a pestilence among them. 70,000 people die. In the midst of these 70,000 people's dying, Gad comes back to him and says, David, I want you to go make a sacrifice. He goes and he begins to make the sacrifice. He tells him exactly where to do it. This man owned some property at the highest point of Jerusalem. He owned this property. He said, I want you to go buy that property and sacrifice for me there. So the king shows up at this man's house. The man, overwhelmed, as overwhelmed as you would be if the president showed up to your house, perhaps even more so, he comes in. And before he can even get into his house, he's just on his property. There he goes, and he bows down his feet. He says, King David, whatever you need, I'll do. He says, I need to make sacrifices here. And the man says, no problem. It would be my honor for you to make a sacrifice here. But don't worry about having to pay for instruments. Don't worry having to pay for oxen. I'll provide all of it for you. Here you go. It's all yours. And that's where David responds to him. I can't sacrifice something to the Lord that costs me nothing. Now, I think this fits right into American Christianity extremely importantly here. And I would echo the same sentiments David said. Do you realize that we cannot offer the Lord something that doesn't cost us anything? Something meaningful and valuable. Now, the the irony of it is it's different for all of us, right? Some people have a great attachment to their wealth. And so dropping a dollar in the plate's a big deal. Because they're savers, they're industrious, they may even be covetous, frankly. But money means a lot to them. And so they grasp it tightly. 
And God may require of that, of you, something that's valuable to you. It might be your money. If you're like me, I'll tell you what's very valuable to me. It's time. You can just ask Kathleen how much did I gripe about being late. Right? Time is so valuable to me. And so when I am asked to do something by someone and I don't want to do it, it bothers me. I gripe and I complain and I, I do all number of things because what I value is my time. And I only want to spend my time doing, frankly, things that I find valuable. And if you find something valuable and I don't find it valuable, I might gripe and complain about it because that's something valuable to me. And so for me to show love and care to somebody, it's to give of my time because I find that so valuable. Other people, it's engagement. Right? It's easy to be somewhere, but a lot of people are afraid to take the risk to actually invest themselves into something. I see this a lot with high school students. They'll show up, but they're not engaged. And so what they're afraid to reveal is the real them putting forth their effort. I especially see it a lot in young men. They're afraid to fail so they don't try. Because if they try, they risk the potential for failure. And so they withhold it because what's important to them is their ego. They can always say, oh, I didn't try. You see, the very things that we treasure are valuable to us are the very things that we have the privilege to use to express our love to God. Because God has established high values, things that he says, these things are important to me. And I am going to call you to do these things. And the way that we can express our love to God is by saying, whatever stands in the way, whatever I highly value, I'm willing to sacrifice in order to achieve what God is calling me to. So we learn very first of all, a person's got to be saved. They've got to abandon themselves, right? That's a value God holds as important is that you would repent of your sins, put faith in Jesus Christ, surrender as we heard last week in revival over and over, a complete and total surrender of yourself that you give in order to express to God you love him more than any other thing. But listen, that's not all. There are a lot of things that God values that he calls us as his people to sacrifice in order to do those things. One of those things is a temporal thing. It's family. Man, that's been lost today in our culture, hasn't it? I mean, people say family's important. But often they don't live it. Especially husbands, fathers. Going and getting women pregnant out of wedlock and then disappearing. That's a travesty in our culture today. Men have valued their own comfort, their own what they want to do. And have said, you know what? And our legal system has not helped at all by making a man's office perceivably replaceable. As if the only thing that a man could contribute is money to that. No, but the Bible calls men to much higher purpose than that. Men, the most important thing in this life while you are here is your family. 
raising and rearing your children, being a godly husband to your wife, sacrificially giving of yourself at a personal cost to you for their spiritual and temporal welfare. Our culture's lost that today. Why? Because people aren't willing to sacrifice what is necessary. So what do young men do today? They play games. They play games. Young men, I'll tell you this morning, video games are dangerous. Not because of all the possible things that could happen, but here's why. They're designed in a way to be addictive. They're perfectly, perfectly, listen, when they first came out and you're playing uh, simple games like Mario where the objective is very easy and you can complete it in just a couple minutes, that's very different from games of today. Games of today are designed for those older people that might not know where you can play for six months or nine months or a year or a few years and still not get to the end of the purpose of that game. And I'm not talking about playing once a week. I'm saying every day, three or four or five hours a day, people play and they can't get to the end purpose of that game for years. What does that tell me? It's dangerous. Because it's so creative, it's so fun. And yet young men often, they get addicted to it. You know, I've had counseling sessions with young couples before, and guess what the problem was? Video games. Neglecting his wife, neglecting his children because he wanted to play in a fantasy that doesn't matter whatsoever. Dangerous. Why do I say that this morning? Because... For some young men here today to follow the Lord, what I had to learn whenever I was 18 and God called me to preach when I was 17 is that what was getting in my way as a minister of the gospel was video games. So guess what I had to do? Ask myself the question, is this what God has called me to do more valuable than the thing that I love to do? You know, the ministry has become more valuable to me in part because of what I've sacrificed to do it. And the first thing that I remember sacrificing, as silly as it might sound to some people as a young man, the first thing I had to sacrifice was that. And it hurt. Because as new game after new game came out and after friend after friend talked about what they were doing and after occasionally when I would play with my friends and I was terrible at it, the cost became apparent to me. May not sound like a big thing to some people, but I think in our generation to deal today, it's a very big deal. And it's something that would come at a great cost. And yet to be a man of a family, raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Because if you'll notice in Ephesians chapter four, excuse me, chapter six, verse four, it says this, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Notice who the directive is given to. Fathers do that. In part, I think that's the reason why God does that is because it's very natural for women to give themselves to their families. It's not for a man. It's not as natural most of the time as it is for a woman. Men often have great ambitions outside of their family and may feel tempted to go after those ambitions at the expense of, of their families. And so he says, fathers, don't provoke your kids to wrath, but devote yourself to bringing your children up in the discipline of the Lord. That's what admonition means. You know what that teaches me? 
there's thought process that goes into raising your children. Planning. Recognizing what's going on in their lives. God has set that. Here's my point this morning. God has set that as a value that he has that is going to require from all of us sacrifice in order to achieve it. Got to be willing to make sacrifices in regards to job and money and hobbies in order to be a godly family. Listen, there are three things that I would love to see me experience in life. Three goals that I have whenever I die. You know, one of them is that when I'm laying in my deathbed, I'm surrounded by four children who not only go to church, but have devoted their hearts and lives to serving the master. One of my big goals is not, I think people take too much consolation in their kids being in church. It's more than that. It's about having a deep, real relationship with that man, Jesus Christ, through the Spirit. Knowing that my children have willingly sacrificed all the enticements of the world, or many of them, in order to maintain that and strive to follow him. One of the goals of my life. I can lay on my deathbed knowing my children are doing that very thing. What else does God set as a high value of his? His reputation. His reputation God sets as a high value. Remember in the Old Testament, one of the most famous stories is David and Goliath. And Remember the forerunner to that unfolding is that these men have gathered on a hillside and they're looking out and Goliath comes out day after day and he's insulting the God of Israel. Now, what was a common perception back then, which is not so coincidentally, I think, still in people's minds today sometimes, is that if you serve a great God, you're going to be wealthy and things are going to go well for you. You're going to win battles. And if things go poorly for you, your God is weak He's punishing you, or our God is superior to you. And so there Goliath comes out, and he begins to taunt the armies of the living God, the people of God. David comes down, and he watches what takes place one day. And he sees all of these men just terrified to go out and fight Goliath. And he volunteers. And do you recognize what drove this young little boy David to go and fight was the reputation of God and his people. He wanted his God to be known as the God of the universe, as the superior God. And so he took great offense when his God was being repudiated, when his God was being insulted, and the people of God were not standing up to defend God's honor and his name. So he stands up and he says, is Excuse me, Eliab, his older brother, says, you've come down here just to see the battle. You're just a little ruddy boy. Get out of here. The Bible teaches us that David looked and he said, is there not a cause? Is there not something that is worth us fighting for here after what this man is doing? 
and David was willing to jeopardize his own safety, he had no expectation, nobody expected him to go out and fight the man because by all natural terms, he was ill-equipped and yet God had equipped him long before to go out and to fight that battle and to silence that man for one reason, that people would look upon that incident and say, a little boy versus a great giant, there's no other thing that could have done that other than that God intervened and that Israel's God is the superior God. God allowed David to intervene and David did it because of the reputation of his God. That was worth upholding. Do you know why you need to live right? You know the number one reason? Oh, I could entice you with the benefits this morning. I could say if you're not out there and you're being licentious, if you're not out there and you're, you're sleeping around with people, if you're not partying, I could give you all the natural pragmatic benefits to that. But let me give you a better one. Because the reputation of our God is at stake in you. You walk around as someone saved by God's grace, as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And when people see you, whether you recognize it or not, they see him. Why do I want to represent God well? Why do I repent whenever I sin? Not because I just want to be restored to fellowship with God, but because I genuinely mourn at the fact that I misrepresented the God that I serve. And I want his forgiveness for that. And I want to restore back to relationship with him so that when I go out the next day and I begin to live my life, his strength will be with me to better reflect his righteousness. And that when people look upon our good works, they glorify our Father which is in heaven. You see, living the right way, you can do things in secret. You can hide and get away with things. You can go to places in the darkness where only people of the darkness go. But recognize everywhere you go, you take that light with you. The Bible teaches us that those things that are done in secret shall one day be shouted on the rooftops. Here recently, there was a man who I admired very much, or at least I used to. He was a minister. He wasn't of our faith, but he was a very well-known leader. His name was Ravi Zacharias. And did a lot of good in the world, so I thought. But behind closed doors, he did a lot of bad to the world. And I mourned. I wept when I learned it. Do you know why? Because of God's name. Did you know when Ravi Zacharias died in the White House, the press secretary did a whole day about the life of Ravi Zacharias. The whole world called him one of the great theologians, one of the great apologists of our time. And so we thought he was. Why do people mourn today for him? Why do people mourn over the situation? Not only for the people who were harmed and sexually abused in all of that situation, but foremost, the reputation of our God. God's reputation is worth upholding and is worth sacrificing for. If God sees, if other people see, rather, that our priorities are about everything else except of our God, what does it say about the greatness of our God? That he's not worth sacrificing for? Reputation of God is worth making sacrifices for. Our families and making sure that we have a godly family is worth sacrificing for. And the Lord's church is worth sacrificing for. There's no other way around it, but that when a person is baptized, I want you to realize what you're doing. You're professing of what's taking place within 
But there's also an action that you're, you're covenanting to take. You're stepping out from the people of the world and joining yourself to the people of God. Let's pause right there. That comes at a cost, doesn't it? Because let's be honest, being a part of the people of the world is temporarily very fun. It satisfies the natural longings of the flesh because the mantra of the world is this, YOLO, you only live once. Go do what makes you happy. Go do what makes you feel good. Go accomplish your dreams. That's what the world is. And the Bible tells us, guess what? All of those things in the world pass away. In the end, they don't matter at all. God didn't send us here to do vain things. God sent us here to do eternal things. That's why he keeps us here. Is that as an ambassador, we might go out on his behalf, serving him, glorifying him, and helping other people. You know what is worth sacrificing for is his church. Why? Because his church is given the primary responsibility to go out to the world and to give their lives as Jesus gave his on behalf of a lost world. So what does that require of us? I could go through the list of things, but let me make it one simple. It's one word, three letters, you. That's what it costs. It costs you. And everything about you. You know, it's kind of funny. By nature, I'm an introverted person. Isn't that kind of funny standing back here? By nature, when I'm in a group of people, do you know what I like to do? Sit back and not say anything. Listen. Shortly after I became a pastor, I began to realize you can't do that. And so sometimes, you know, something will come to me and I'll know something needs to be said. Something needs to be done. I don't want to do it. Not because maybe it's hard, but because it requires me to be assertive. It requires me to step up and say something and be a leader. And that's not my natural tendency. My natural tendency to say, let somebody else do that. But you know, I had to give up whenever I became a pastor and accepted that call. I get to give up that part of myself. I've got to let myself change and make a sacrifice. Why? Because that's what God's calling me to. You know what you find when you begin to serve the Lord is that slowly you, as you mature in Christ, are trimmed away. And where you started as a Christian ought to look very different than where you end up. You're not the person you once were because what God is doing is changing you into what he wants you to be. This morning I say all that to say this. It's worth making a sacrifice to follow Christ. It's worth it. Because there's coming a day where it's all going to be revealed. Where it's all going to be held open. And what I want to be able to do is go before the Lord and say, Lord, I loved you more than I loved anything else in this world. I gave everything that I could. And you know what? The further you get with Christ, the more I learn in the scriptures is this. People counted a great privilege the more they can sacrifice on his behalf. And people mourn that they can't sacrifice more for him. You ever thought about being a martyr for Christ? What that would entail? You know, when we get a glimpse in the book of Revelation, we don't hear people bemoaning the fact that they were martyred for Christ, but rather celebrating they had the privilege to do it. 
Remember Acts chapter 16, whenever Paul and Silas were in prison, they weren't bemoaning, what were they doing? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ's sake. Because what happens, and I'm going to close with this, when you begin to make sacrifices, you ever been on the brink of making a sacrifice and you stood there, maybe let's just use the metaphor, let's say it was money and you have a check in your hand. It's not one of the normal checks. It's not one of those, the thousand or maybe two thousand dollars that you know, hey, it's just going to be a couple weeks, maybe a month and I can replenish that. But I mean one of those that it's going to cost you something you've been saving for for a really long time. You're holding on to it. And metaphorically, you say, I, I just, it's hard for me to give. I'm torn. You ever had those moments in your life where, metaphorically speaking, you're holding on to that check and you just can't let it go? And you finally just you give it, you give it away? So let me ask this question. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time that serving Christ came at a cost to you? Serving the Lord has its benefits. But friends, to be in the inner circle of Christ, it requires personal sacrifice. I don't want to give to the Lord something that cost me nothing. Why? Because it's an insult to what a sacrifice is. Not only is it an insult to God, it doesn't fully communicate my love for Him. I love Him so much, I want to be willing to give it all and say, Lord, whatever you want. This morning, God desires a costly sacrifice from us. I hope this week as you go home and you're navigating your life and you're carrying out those normal things that you always do, looking to achieve those goals and ideals that you aspire to, I hope in the midst of it, you'll ask yourself this question. What of these things am I not willing to give up to be a servant of Christ? You know, one of the things that I love about the Lord is he never requires anything from us that he himself did not exemplify in his life. That's the wonderful thing about reading Jesus. He tells you, go lose your life and you'll find it. You know why he says that? Because he did it. And then here's the beauty of the picture. When a seed falls to the ground and dies, it brings forth fruit. You know what the wonderful thing about a life of sacrifice is? It yields fruit at the benefit of other people. You look at all the great men and women in history through the scriptures, what you'll find is that they painfully sacrificed things that sometimes were so difficult, they're unutterable in their sorrow. And yet, it brings about the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Other people, some it brings forth 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. What better in life would you love than at your death 
for thousands of people to show up because of the fruit that was displayed in your sacrifice. Maybe they don't show up. Maybe God alone has that record and knows. This morning, I bring before you the cost of being a Christian. What I've described this morning is the minimum. Isn't that crazy? I mean, really, isn't that crazy? God says, that's not what we think of as like the highest giving. That's the minimum requirement God requires to be a disciple of his. I want to give more. And I want you to know what it's like to give more. Because there's life in that. And that's the irony of sacrifice. You give, and you find life in that. Not loss. That's our message this morning. I pray that God would use it. It was a lot clearer in my mind than it came out, but I hope that God would use it in your heart as he sees fit today.